This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. What are today's top security threats to UK banking institutions? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with Rick Ferguson, Director of Security Research and Communications with Trend Micro. Rick, thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure. To start out with, Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your experience, and your role with Trend Micro, please? Uh, I've been working in the uh, IT industry since, uh, I guess, about 1994, so it's been a while now. Um, I did a fair few years working in uh, in technical support, but then I moved to uh, working for a systems integrator, designing um, secure systems, mostly for blue chip and government accounts. I've been with Trend Micro now for uh, three years, and, and prior to that, I was uh, uh, about five years with uh, McAfee, uh, who working obviously in the same industry. Uh, and right now, I'm actively engaged in uh, ongoing threat research, security research, and I work closely with our enterprise customers to help them uh, understand the challenges that they face through the adoption of new technology and the kinds of security technologies that need to be applied. Very good. I'd be curious to get your perspective on what you see as the top security threats today to UK banking institutions. And I'd be particularly interested in what's unique from those that we see in the U.S. and elsewhere. I think in in Europe in general, and certainly in the UK, uh, the deployment of multi-factor authentication um, it happened a lot sooner, and it's been a lot more widespread um, than my than you know, according to my impressions it has been in the US. Uh, you know, I've spoken to friends and colleagues from the US, and certainly some of them are still relying on simple username and password combinations to access their, their online accounts. Um, and I think that's one of the major challenges to banks is actually you know keeping their losses to a minimum through the theft of consumer information and, and business information when it comes to accessing those accounts and making uh, unauthorized transfers of funds. Um, the, the problem really stems from the, the, the really well-established underground economy, if you like, where, where this kind of information is traded. And you can buy you know, access to an online bank account for as little as um, 2 or 3% of the available balance in the account most of the time think the price up as a, a percentage of the balance of the account and, and equally you can get access to uh, credit card information for upwards of two dollars per card uh, and you can buy whole identities for, for as little as 10 US dollars um, so that that thriving and established underground economy is really what's driving the, the risk to financial institutions and, and they need to deploy technologies to enable them to, to cut their losses uh, and, and to minimize the investment from a, a technology standpoint that they need to make. Rick, you talked about multi-factor authentication. I'd like to hear more about that because, as you know, in the U.S. now, there is pending guidance about multi-factor authentication. In your experience, what works and what still needs work with multi-factor authentication in banks? You know, that's a really interesting question because I think... Um, the answer is often misunderstood. Multi-factor authentication is perceived by many as being, you know, the panacea, the thing that will resolve uh, those issues. You know, if we give all of our users some kind of USB token, or if we give them SMS passwords or a, a sheet of paper with, with one-time passwords on it, then we're good. 
But the real problem is that we're not authenticating the right thing. What we're doing is we're authenticating the, the person. So the person is proving that they are who they say they are by use of multiple factors. And that could be, you know, receiving an SMS to the mobile phone. It could be using a, a password from a sheet of paper. Um, you know, multi-factor authentication is based traditionally on, on something you know, which usually is your password, something you have, which could be your USB token or your mobile phone or something like that, uh, and sometimes based on something that you are, which is often, you know, the biometric uh, factor. Obviously, rolling out biometrics in a, in a financial institution is difficult because you need to make sure that every customer's PC has access to some kind of biometric reader. So we're relying more on things like tokens and one-time passwords. Um, but when I say authenticating the wrong thing, is what I mean is we, we sit in front of our computer, we open a browser, we connect to our banking website, uh, we enter our username, certain digits from our password, and then our one-time code. And at that point, we establish a secure tunnel between the client and the financial institution, and any transactions take place within that, that privileged uh, tunnel, if you like. What we need to remember is that malware has evolved to the point where it can sit inside the browser of the infected computer and intervene with any transactions that we make, even if it's in a secure tunnel. So I could be telling my browser to tell my bank I want to transfer you know, 500 US dollars or 500 pounds to my mum, and I have to rely that my browser is going to relay that information intact to the bank. Of course, if the criminal is inside my browser, he can modify that transaction and change it from 500 to $5,000, transferring not to my mum, but to some money mule somewhere. Uh, when the bank sends the reply, the first person to see the reply is the criminal in the browser. And you can, again, modify the reply, but all I see is exactly what I was expecting to see. And malware is absolutely doing that already. So when we create that privileged environment, yes, we authenticate the person and we prove that we are who we say we are, but we don't do anything at all about verifying the integrity of the transaction. And that's where we need to focus our uh, our technology is on guaranteeing the integrity of the transactions that take place, not simply the identity of the user. Rick, to go in another direction entirely, I'd like to talk about cloud computing with you. What would you say is the state of mm -hmm. cloud computing today with, with banks in the UK? I think a lot of uh, enterprises in general, and I don't think banks and financial institutions are any exception to this, definitely see the benefits from uh, building and using cloud. Um, I think there's more reticence when it comes to using public cloud than private cloud for obvious reasons. You know, it's a heavily regulated uh, industry and they have um, you know, limitations on what they can do with data, where data can be stored, the kinds of protection that should be applied. But I think the problem is that the term cloud can mean different things to different people. You know, if you ask a, a four-star general, a sysadmin, a hacker, uh, and uh, financier for their definition of security, you'll get four very different answers to that question. Uh, and, and the same, you know, or cloud, sorry, and the same is true of security. It means different things to different people. So now we're putting those two words together as cloud security and expecting people to know what we're talking about. So I think instead of talking about cloud, it's more important from a, a technological perspective to focus on the engines that drive the cloud. And to my mind, that's, that's virtualization and storage area networks. Without those two technologies, the whole concept of cloud wouldn't be possible. And it's certainly true to say that there are new risks that arise within those kinds of environments that were not present uh, in the you know, their physical allegory beforehand. So with virtualization, um, first of all, systems are much more mobile, especially in a, in a private cloud environment. You can never be sure 
you know, which server or system will, will come to life on any given point in time, and you can never be sure exactly where your data will be stored at any point in time. And those problems are exacerbated when we talk about a multi-tenanted environment, whether that's public cloud or a multi-tenanted private cloud. We may end up with mixed trust-level virtual machines on the same hypervisor, uh, and when it comes to auditing, we need to make sure we can effectively um, segregate those machines one from another, even within the same hypervisor. Number one, to, to limit the scope of audits, but obviously important for security as well. And the same is true not just of systems, but also of data. So when data is stored in a storage area network, the audits and checks of who's accessing that data, you know, is it just your department or is it a department you shouldn't have access? Is it your service provider who's, you know, gaining unauthorized access to privileged information? How do you how do you audit that access? How do you report on that? And how do you demonstrate compliance? So we're in an era now where the traditional physical perimeter of a network has really become less and less relevant. It's blurred almost to the point of indistinction. And we need to make sure that we can deploy technologies that are capable of securing each individual virtual machine at the perimeter of that virtual machine to effectively segregate them on the same hypervisor. And we need to make sure that we can encrypt the data that we put into clouds, whether private or public, so that it can't be accessed by people who don't have the authority, and that includes the service provider. And the only way we can really achieve that is through effective use of encryption, where the data owner maintains ownership of the keys to that data. Well, you've outlined a number of challenges there. One of the things I found to be resonant at this year's RSA conference in the U.S. was that whereas a year ago the CEOs all were talking about we're going to the cloud, this year, it seemed like the CISOs were all saying, well, we've got security issues that need to be addressed. What issues do you see that the banks have addressed, and what are the big ones that remain to be tackled? Yeah, I think um, when you talk about a C-level executive, and, and, you know, I said security means different things to different people. I think for a C-level executive, security is really all about control and accountability. And this move to the cloud is something which is being driven in the most part by the commercial side of the business. You know, people see a lot of commercial benefits with moving into the cloud. There's scalability enhancements, performance enhancements, greening IT, lowering costs when it comes to things like data center power, air conditioning. There's a whole lot of commercial benefits to moving to the cloud. Um, but by necessity, when you outsource any part of your business, you have to give up a certain level of control as well. Um, now, you can't outsource accountability. That's not something that's legally possible. So executives are left in this uncomfortable position where they maintain accountability for the security of their data, but they don't feel that they have the control. And I think we're just at that point now where technology is beginning to allow the CISOs, the people who, who feel that they need to maintain technical control over their systems and data, uh, where the security industry is beginning to give them the tools that give them the necessary level of comfort to actually begin to embrace that move to the cloud. We've talked about a fair amount in this conversation. We've touched upon authentication. We've touched upon cloud computing. Rick, what are some of the specific security and particularly compliance trends that you're looking at in 2011? When it comes to finance, obviously, you know, the biggest one, the biggest driver is definitely um, PCI DSS compliance. And one of the things that can make that quite cumbersome and unwieldy is the, determining the, the scope of the audit. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, when you move into virtualization, you can very quickly begin to lose control of, um, of the 
scope of that order, as you have these mixed trust level VMs sitting on the same hypervisor. So that's definitely a challenge when it comes to uh, planning your virtualization deployment. Um, other problems uh, that, that certainly institutions in Europe face are related to the European Directive on Data Protection, which has been translated into national legislation in each of the, the member countries of the European Union. Um, all of them in slightly different ways, some more strict and some less strict, but they're all based around the same directive. And that's about protecting the security of personal information, anything which is personally identifiable. So we're talking about things like you know, the European equivalents of social security numbers. Uh, we're talking about uh, names, addresses, dates of birth. And then there are other kinds of information um, which may or not be held, may or may not be held by financial institutions, which can be classified as being um, even more sensitive, and that's things like religion, sexual orientation, um, those kinds of more personal information. And every organisation that is a data owner is under a legal obligation to protect that data from breach. And in the event of a breach, uh, the penalties can be quite severe. They, again, they vary from country to country, but they almost all include the notion of some quite stiff um, financial penalties, and in some jurisdictions can also even include jail time. So there's, there's a lot of financial institutions looking at some kind of, well, first of all, protection for data in storage, so that's you know more the encryption side of things, uh, but also uh, protection of data in transit and making sure the information is not leaking inappropriately from organizations, so that's more you know the DLP uh, technology side of things. Um, the biggest challenge for, for institutions, and I think to a certain extent particularly financial institutions, is the first step of actually being able to identify what data they have, uh, where it is, who should have access to it, and what kinds of activities should be allowed in order to even begin building out that policy. And that's really quite a, quite a huge challenge. I mean, I spoke to one of the big four banks, what we call the big four banks in the UK, um, in, in a meeting in London recently, and you know, they came very clean and said, you know, we know where our data is. Um, it's one big amorphous blob in the data center, but we have no idea of exactly what we hold or who should have access to it, or in fact, who's doing what with that data. And it's, that's probably one of the biggest challenges to financial organizations right now is that initial uh, identification and audit process around data. Well, Rick, a final question for you. If you were to give banking institutions a piece of advice on how to tackle that challenge, what would your advice be? I think when you're talking about you know the larger financial institutions, you need to get ex external advice, external um, uh, advice when it comes to the identification and classification of data. Um, but I think one of the most important things that you can do is don't simply rely on the responses that you will get to uh, paper-based or, or interview-type questionnaires about how people are accessing and using data, because more often than not, People will tell you what they think they should be doing with data, but it's much more of a challenge to find out exactly what people are doing with data to identify the information flows within your business. So to supplement that kind of audit, upfront audit procedure, it's important to put some, some technology in place that is capable of monitoring what is actually happening with information you deem sensitive on your network and doing some kind of gap analysis between what do people think they're doing and what are people actually doing so that you have a real picture of where you stand so your baseline is correct and enables you to plan security effectively from that point on. Rick, that's excellent insight. Thanks so much for your time and your thoughts today. My pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking about security threats to UK banking institutions. 
we've been talking with Rick Ferguson, Director of Security Research and Communications with Trend Micro. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.bankinfosecurity.com.